Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui, I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Te Whakaheki o Te Wai is a project to better understand groundwater in New Zealand. The ambitious project is funded by the Endeavour Fund of the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. It's developing a world-first series of maps showing the source and flow patterns of groundwater in aquifers and large river catchments across the country. This information will help us better manage this important source of fresh water. I'm off to GNS Science to meet researchers Amber Aranui from Te Papa and GNS's Catherine Moore and Uwe Morgenstern to find out more. Groundwater is all of the water beneath the ground and it is a major source of the base flow in rivers. So when river flows get low, that's basically groundwater. Groundwater is also pumped out for irrigation supply and for drinking water supplies. Now, when I think of groundwater, I think of aquifers. So is all groundwater an aquifer, or are aquifers a subset of groundwater? Aquifers are a subset of groundwater. They're groundwater that is in more permeable rocks, so we can extract more water from those aquifer groundwater than, than groundwater in general. So you can have groundwater in clay, but you wouldn't call that an aquifer because you're not able to extract that water at a high rate. And so this is all water, it's sitting between gravels, it's sitting in the pores of soil and clay, things like that. Exactly, yeah. And is there much of it in New Zealand? There's a lot of it. There's particularly a lot of it in areas where we have a large gravel alluvial fans underneath the ground, so in, in Canterbury and in the Hawke's Bay and uh, also in the Hauraki Plains. There, there's not so much gravel there, but we have good large aquifers there. Can you put a number on the number of aquifers and groundwater catchments, I suppose? There's less than 20 very large aquifers in the country, but there's some very localised small aquifers in very small valleys. But there'd be no more than 20 regional huge large aquifers. What interests you particularly about groundwater and aquifers? What I'm most interested in is how to take the laws of physics and different data that we have to be able to make predictions of future groundwater flows and flows into rivers and and groundwater quality given changes in land use and abstraction. What about you, Amber? For me, it's probably a little bit more personal. So my background isn't in groundwater, but uh, the area in which this project is based is where I'm from. So for me, it's about uh, ensuring that my community, that my iwi, uh, my whānau, have clean water to drink um, and are able to interact with the water as they used to from the past right through until, until today, whether that be eeling, whether that be fishing, whether that be having places in which they are able to harvest harakeke, um to weave. So has your iwi's experience with water changed? Yes, you know, in the past, uh, the Hiratonga Plains area was largely swampland and waterways. And over time, and with uh, European arrival, those lands have been drained, which has changed life 
for Ngāti Kahununu, you know, over the last few hundred years. But water's still really important, and that's really visible in the way in which they've been really active about water issues with the uh, local and regional councils, and particularly through Waitangi Tribunal claims. Have you ever given much thought to groundwater, to this water that we can't see that's underneath us? Prior to this project, no, I hadn't, uh, and I'm learning so much. I have a growing interest in this topic now. You know, for me personally, where I live, I look at water a lot differently, thinking, where do these streams come from? Are they coming from that aquifer or are they feeding it? And, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm really, I have a growing interest in water, particularly, you know, for, for community health and well-being and and I just think, well, it's good for Māori, it's good for everybody. So if we can support, you know, local iwi and, and some of the issues that they have around water, um, then that benefits everyone. And what about you, Uva? What interests you about groundwater? My interest mainly is in understanding how the water moves through the ground. So we are measuring uh, isotopic signatures uh, of the water molecules, and that can tell us uh, where the water has been recharged uh, and also how long it took the water to flow through the aquifer. Can you explain that a bit more to me? How do you age water? Yeah, so uh, there is uh, one uh, tool for uh, groundwater dating, which is uh, tritium. Tritium is a cosmogenic isotope, so it's uh, produced by cosmic ray bombardment uh, of uh, atmospheric uh, nuclei uh, like argon and nitrogen. They disintegrate into smaller particles, uh, smaller elements, uh, and some of them are radioactive isotopes. Uh, one well-known is radiocarbon, but there's also another one, uh, which is tritium. And tritium is a radioactive isotope uh, of hydrogen, and being hydrogen, it's part of a water molecule. So that's why it's uh, the perfect tracer for uh, groundwater dating for the uh, hydrologic cycle. And using the radioactive decay, we can basically just measure the concentration in the rain compared to what we find in the groundwater, and we can calculate the age of the water. So what sort of ages are we talking about for groundwater? Most aquifers in New Zealand which are being used, the water ages are below 100 years, typically probably in the range of 10 to 20 years. So if I was in Canterbury, for example, I'm thinking Christchurch gets its water from a big aquifer and I turned on my tap, how old's the water coming out of my tap? In Canterbury, the situation is slightly different because the city supply uh, is mainly uh, from deep uh, groundwater wells, which are thousands of years old. So we're drinking water there that went underground before humans arrived in this country. Yes, that's right, yeah. We hear a lot about pollution from nitrates and phosphates in our water supply, but at the moment we're drawing out water that's you know, tens, hundreds, even thousands of years old. So is water that we're currently putting into our groundwater system, are we going to wear the consequences of that in hundreds or thousands of years' time? So we, we're not really seeing the signature of that yet? Yeah, so we don't need to look uh, hundreds of thousands of years ahead. We can just look decades ahead. And uh, a very good example is Lake Rotorua. In the Lake Rotorua catchment, uh, it, it had been recognized in the 70s that there's a problem uh, in the lake. So a lot of remediation has been done in terms of fencing farms uh, of waterways and also building uh, treatment plant, water treatment plants. 
But yet, the water quality had deteriorated further in, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we measured uh, the water flows, so the rivers and streams which flow into Lake Rotorua, and all of that water is actually between 50 and 100 years old. So what we are seeing, the nitrate load going into the lake, uh, what we are seeing now is actually the load from 50 years ago. So uh, that is basically just the tip of the iceberg. So we will see more nitrate coming into the lakes uh, in future. So there's a load still to come? Uh, we actually call it exactly like that, load to come. Yeah. Now tell me about this new Endeavour Fund project you have. Basically we're using groundwater models to predict the outcome of, of different management scenarios, but they're very uncertain, these, these groundwater models, because, because we are unable to look below the ground apart from at a few discrete places where we have a bore and then we take a sample. So there's a lot of uncertainty, so we're trying to bring in more information to help inform those groundwater models. So this project is about bringing in the isotope information that Uve's collecting in, in the more effective ways and bringing in the indigenous knowledge that Amber's um, collating into models. So we need to design our models in a different way to, to make use of that information. So this is about mapping groundwater and then modelling what might happen to it. Exactly, yeah. And so we're trying to do that at a number of scales, at a number of large scales to help regional rules and policy, but also at very small scales where we're looking at the security of a water supply or why that stream beside that marae no longer flows, so from local to very large scale. We're mostly focusing on Herotonga Plains. So describe the situation in the Herotonga Plains for me in terms of groundwater. In the Herotonga Plains, most of the groundwater in the aquifer is recharged from the Nauroro River around the area uh, at uh, Royce Hill. This water gets underground, uh, is basically lost from the river, flows further underground toward the coast and it has uh, high flow rates at the beginning but then further to the coast the flow slows down uh, until it's very slow. There is also large amounts in the southern Herentunga Plains which are actually recharged from local rain. We do know this uh, from various signatures. Uh, so first, the groundwater contains a slight amount of nitrates, so the river water doesn't uh, have nitrates, so this is already an indication that it is recharged from rain. But uh, also this isotopic signature is clearly not that of the Nauroro River. So it's quite complicated then, some of it from rain, some of it from rivers. Yes, so it is a very complex situation, and we also see... Uh, preferential flow paths uh, which we, uh, where we see very high flow rates uh, and uh, very young groundwater in, uh, in these uh, flow paths which we can interpret as uh, paleo river channels, buried paleo river channels. Ah, okay. So places where rivers used to flow. How old is the oldest water in this catchment? Uh, the oldest water which we have uh, just detected uh, is uh, at uh, a depth uh, of about uh, 250 metres uh, with uh, about 4,000 years old. OK, so we've got 4,000-year-old water going on here. We've also got some very young water. Most of the water which uh, is being used uh, is in a range of uh, zero to about 10 years. So since you come from the Amber, how is the water being used? So 
bore water is important in the Herotonga Plains? Yes, yes. There are a number of communities in which bore water is, is their main way of getting water for their community. Um, my own community in particular, which is Pakipaki, you know, I remember as a child st- staying with my nanny and Koro and knowing that the water was a bit weird and that was because it came out of the bore. Um, interestingly, now that water can no longer be used and so for me one of the interesting things about this project is finding out more about why why can we not use that water anymore when did it change from being sort of drinkable usable water to um, water which is almost stagnant and so does that relate to a lot of the land use now um, farming agriculture and that type of thing because it affects our communities you know we've got our elders there who become sick you know they're not able to get in enough water particularly in the in the summer months you know and so for me that's important and particularly in and around our Mariah too you know we have a lot of people coming and spending time there and and we have to host people there and we need to make sure that you know that there's enough water you know we have the right to have our own water I know through talking to Komatua and reading um, tribunal claim documents that the Hiratonga Plains, was they started to drain that land in the 1860s. So that's when, um, I guess, changes in the landscape in terms of water uh, began. You know, prior to that, um, the Hiratonga Plains was a really rich water source and our people lived in and around the area and up in the high ground compared to today where we've actually moved um, in onto the plains. So, you know, the fact that there are very little archaeological sites on the plains shows that that's not the place that we, that we used to live, but it was the place where we used to gather kai and other resources. In August 2016, contaminated water in the town of Havelock North caused a Campylobacter outbreak. It made over 5,000 people violently ill, and it was linked to three deaths. Uva says testing and an understanding of the groundwater system of the Herotonga Plains helped solve the problem of how contamination occurred at one of the town's water supply bores. Most of the Herodonga Plains are confined, so it's a confined aquifer. That means uh, it's uh, overlain by an impermeable layer, so it's basically protected from surface contamination, but uh, Havelock North is very close to the boundary of a confinement, and this is where uh, contaminants from the surface uh, got into the groundwater wells. Exactly occurred on this place called Brookvale Road, and about 100 metres from one of the water supply wells for Havelock North, which was Elroll and Brookvale Road, there was a remnant puddle um, beside a stream, that occurred after high rainfall and sheep came and defecated in the puddle and um, that contaminants from the sheep poo <laughs> moved into the aquifer. But it did it very, very quickly. So it moved from the puddle to the well within a day. And that's the problem, that it moved so quickly. And so the normal microbial decay, that's our sort of factor of safety that provides us with secure um, drinking water it wasn't there, you know, just travelled straight from the, the puddle to the well and then everyone got sick. And the reason that that could occur, that very, very fast groundwater could occur is because of these 
things we call open framework gravels, which are, as the alluvial gravels are deposited, some of those, usually it's a mixture of silt and sand and clay, but on these corners of the river, some of that clay gravel gets re-sorted and then it becomes very free-draining gravels, and we call them open framework gravels, and they're very, very small. So you're looking at a picture and you've got a pen... That's only the width of a pen, basically. It's only the width of a pen high, so, and then maybe two metres wide. And throughout those alluvial sequences, there might be, say, 10% of these lenses of open framework gravels, and 95% of the water in an aquifer flows through them. So they're like the arteries? They're like the arteries, yeah, exactly. And they are what transports water very, very quickly, and they're what causes the danger in, in terms of our water supply contamination risks. Right, so in that situation it was just a a perfect storm of one of these arteries of open framework gravels, a contaminated puddle and proximity to a bore. Exactly. Part of our program is to understand these water flow pathways uh, from the surface uh, into the groundwater system and to the drinking water wells. So drinking water security is uh, very important for our program. We want to understand better uh, how we can uh, uh, create uh, secure drinking water sources uh, from uh, aquifers. So and one understanding is uh, uh, from what we just heard, the time, the travel time from the surface to the well is very important. If it is too quick, then there is no way of filtering out and decomposing contaminants. Uh, so we need to basically identify wells which uh, have no young water fraction in them. We get that information from Uve's water dating, which is really important. The other thing that we have to do is when we're trying to predict the risk, we have to make sure we represent those open framework gravels in our model, and that's difficult because they're so small. But if you m- model a, a wellhead protection zone and ignore those open framework gravels, you get a much smaller wellhead protection zone that basically underestimates the risk of contamination at that well. If you represent the open framework gravels, you get these much longer tendrils of um, potential areas of risk around your well that need to be accounted for. Now, you've just pulled up something on your computer screen that looks like a lovely piece of abstract art, almost. (laughs) There's a white ball... But then, as you say, it's got these tendrils drifting off it, a bit like kelp. From your point of view, what am I looking at? Actually, I call them hairy plots <laughs> so because I see something similar to the kelp. Each of the white lines is movement of water from the ground surface to the well through a homogeneous medium, so that's those white lines. But the kelpy lines is movement over a certain time period. Remember we were talking about that microbial decay before. We know that if we have a travel time of a year, pretty much we won't get sick if we drink the water from that well, if if it's all older than a year. So these are all plots of travel time that's taken a year. The blue lines, the kelp lines, those show that you have to travel a lot further to represent that one-year travel time. So in terms of clean water, when it comes to groundwater, time is your friend. Time is your friend. And if you're needing to predict how much area shouldn't have um, sheep <laughs> farming on it, you wouldn't, if you wanted to accurately represent that prediction and the risk 
associated with that prediction, you would want to make sure that those open framework gravels and the kelp-like travel pattern is represented. However, until recently, it hasn't been. So these open framework gravels are a very good example uh, of how complex uh, groundwater flow paths uh, actually are. So what we, uh, where we can see the open uh, framework gravel on the surface, we can't see them deeper down because they, they are not exposed. Uh, but from our isotope methods, uh, we could see uh, flow paths uh, over many kilometers uh, containing very young water. So what we see uh, with the open framework gravel on the surface in very small scale also exists in, in very large scale uh, in the ground system. So this program is about understanding the hydrologic cycle as a total, so including from when the water falls as rain in the catchments, how it transfers into the rivers, into the discharges from the catchment, and how that river water then feeds uh, aquifers. So this uh, interaction between surface water and groundwater and the timescales are very important uh, to produce validated models uh, about these flow systems, uh, which then can be used for a more efficient management of the environment. My part in this project is to understand and acknowledge the importance of Mātauranga Māori or Indigenous knowledge and in fact that Indigenous peoples actually hold a lot of information and also scientific information about the land and the water in which they live. For Māori it's a taonga, so the more we can do, particularly with uh, projects like this, to help um, us understand what's going on under the ground and, and I guess as a consequence what we're doing to the water, it's really important for our future. Many thanks, everyone. Catherine Moore and Uva Morgenstern are from GNS Science and Amber Aranui is with Te Papa Tongarewa. I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 25th of February 2021. You can find photos and links at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And the subscription link for our free email newsletter is at the bottom of the page. You'll find us as RNZ Science wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple, please rate and review us as it really does help other people to find us. Also, do check out the podcast tab at rnz.co.nz. There's a new series of the New Zealand Wars Stories of Tainui. There's a video and also a podcast. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Kia pai tora. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.